0: All right, hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Only once you've met someone. Um, as my wife mentioned, we are in the book of Philippians. We're starting Philippians today. So if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 1 and Acts chapter 16. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. We actually have also these little Philippian journals in the back if you wanted to sneak over there, you can grab one. But they're in the back. If they're just there for free, if you'd like to grab a journal today, next week, um, excited for this. So, the book of Philippians. All right, Philippians is four chapters long. So, knowing us, it should take about four um, uh, years to go through it because um, we fly through books. The Bible. We're covering two whole verses today. Um, and then we're excited for this book. So, one of our, our approach to this book as we kind of went through it and prayed through it is, Paul really kind of has this heavenly mind for the Philippian church. And he talks about how they're citizens of heaven, or the noun version is they are a colony of heaven. And so we want to look at this from the perspective of, as Philippi was a colony of Rome, and we'll talk about that. We're also seeing that Philippi, more importantly, was a colony of heaven. That their job, their role, in a sense, was to bring heaven down. Was to not just kind of keep the Roman culture, but to bring in the heavenly culture. And so as we talked about 2019, our hope is to build the kingdom, to be seekers of the kingdom of God, to seek first the kingdom of God, to build the kingdom, to advance the kingdom, to make Christ's name known in our lives, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families in South Florida. We want to build the kingdom of God. And so we're looking at Philippians from that perspective as a colony of heaven, here to bring heaven to earth. Amen? We're told to pray that. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're told to be people who seek to bring God's kingdom to earth. And so that's our hope as we go through Philippians. Uh, this will be kind of more of an intro. We're going to look at Acts 16 probably a lot more and, and see the, the birth of this church and how it was formed and how it was started. So it's important to get that context. This might be, in a sense, the most impor- important sermon for Philippians because it's really just topics if you don't know the context. I think once you know who the author is, who he's writing to, what's the time period, what's it like, uh, I think it makes the text that much more rich, that much more meaningful. That Paul's not just throwing certain phrases out there, but you actually see why he's writing what he's writing, and so we're going to kind of get to the intro of this as well today. That's why we're going to focus a lot on Acts 16, Uh, but let me kind of explain the the thought or the theme today specifically. So we're going to look at the church of Philippi as simply an unlikely, unlikely church family, all right? This is an unlikely group of people coming together. So we're not going to read. We're just going to pray, pray over this book prayer over the next few months, and uh, I'm just praying that God, that the main thoughts, the heart that you see Paul, that you see God have for the church of Philippi, I hope that we can embrace that as well. All right, so let's pray, and then we'll look at this more in depth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. God, we want this time to be for you, that Jesus, it would not just be a a study of words, but God, that you'd write your words on our heart, that you take this word, and transform us, that we would become just a kingdom-minded people, That we would truly seek first the kingdom, that we would really be citizens of heaven first and foremost. That Jesus, we'd understand what that means, that we'd embrace that. That Jesus, in the midst of just suffering in this early church, maybe in our lives personally, let there be a joy centered on you. And so we ask that you'd speak, that you'd move in your wonderful name. Amen. Again, the title today is uh, An Unlikely Church Family. An Unlikely Church Family. I don't know about you, but about five times a week, I get a call from my good friend, Scam Likely. I don't know if you've ever got a friend or got a phone call from Scam Likely. Uh, If you have Metro or maybe T-Mobile, I get this phone call very often. And the first time I saw it, I'm like, Scam Likely, Scam Likely. Do I know Scam Likely? I'm like trying to think through it. And I don't know if you've done this, but I've I've actually answered Scam Likely phone calls. And it's, it's Scam Always, all right? It's not Scam Likely. And it's funny because I do have a friend who's, whose name is Brian Likely, and he, he's here. And sometimes when I see this come up on my phone, I'm like, oh, it's Brian Likely. And I'm always so like, so close to picking up, like, ah, he almost got me again. Scam. You know? See, it's, it's unlikely, it's Brian Likely. It's more likely, it's scam likely. So that five times fast. Anyways, um, when I look at that phone call, and I've actually, like I said, I've been tempted to pick it up. I picked it up, and I'm going, what am I doing? Why did I pick this up? Um, but this phone call it usually isn't for your benefit. It's usually not looking out for you. You might find nothing in common with scam unlikely or scam likely. (laughs) There's usually nothing there for us, uh, but there's almost that temptation to pick it up. And, And here's why I guess I'm bringing this up. The church of Philippi was an uncommon group of people. And in a sense, you'd say there's no benefit for these people coming together. It doesn't make sense. Economically, socially, spiritually, they're all on different levels. I mean, they're all in a different place in in those levels. And yet, this is an an unlikely group of people that have come together and formed this beautiful church. And honestly, as we pray and look at our church, like, this is an unlikely group of people that God has brought together. It's a beautiful church. And I think as we study Acts 16 more specifically and just kind of read about the birth of this church, you're going to see it's like this random group of people coming together to form, I think, one of the most beautiful churches, a church where Paul just thanks and praises God There's not a lot of discipline in this letter. It's more of like, you guys are amazing. You guys rock. Keep this heavenly mindset. And so it's a unique letter compared to Paul's other letters. And so before I get ahead of myself, let me just kind of explain what we're going to be doing today because, as I mentioned, this is more of like an intro into the book to understand the book. So whenever you approach a new book, uh, there's three questions to ask, really. Uh, The author, the audience, and the agenda. All right, it's kind of like a simple way of looking at it. But who's the author? All right, who is he? What is he like? What's his background? What's his story? Uh, Who's the audience? Who is he writing to? What are they walking through? What does their day-to-day life look like? What do they believe? What does their culture believe? And then what's the agenda? What's the point? Why is he writing this? So the author, the audience, and agenda, this was written around 61, 62 AD, about 10 years after Paul first went to Philippi, about 10 years after he first planted the church in Philippi. And so we're going to walk through this, the author, the audience, the agenda. So let's read verse 1 and 2 as just a whole, those two two whole verses, and then we'll look at this, all right? So verse 1. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, the author, first word, Paul, Paul. Now, in letters like this, they would begin with who they are. Today, we kind of sign off our letters with our name. I think their way makes almost more sense, like who is writing to me? So if you see like Paul, you go, oh, okay, you don't have to wait till the end of the letter. You just look, Paul, Paul's writing this. Uh, again, for us, like we kind of wait. I, I think it's good to have it in the beginning because you're like, oh, Tobias wrote this. I don't want to read that one. But like Paul's like, hey, it's me, Paul. Now, who's Paul? Like a little fun quiz time. Who's Paul? What, who, what was Paul's name before he was Paul? Saul. Now, Saul, who is Saul? And, and why do we need to know about him? And why is he so important? Uh, Saul was a Pharisee. Saul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Saul was part of something called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were like 70 to 71 Jewish males that really kind of led the nation of Israel spiritually. And Saul was like head of his class. He was taught personally by Gamaliel himself. That was just a respected rabbi. And so if you're like a little Jewish boy, you would look up to the Sanhedrin. Like they were a big deal. 70, 71 Jewish males kind of leading the nation. I mean, if you're a little Jewish boy, you probably had, like, Sanhedrin playing cards. Like, oh, I got Saul, like the Babe Ruth of cards, right? It was, like, a big deal to them. It's exciting to them. So he was an important guy, but he was also a persecutor of Christians. After Jesus died and rose again and the church started to form and grow and grow, and Jews were not really converting, but were becoming fulfilled Jews as they were believing that Jesus is the Messiah, Saul goes, this has to stop. Saul was really the first one who kind of gave the approval and killed the first Christian. Saul had blood on his hands. Saul was known for dragging Christians out of their homes, bringing them to prison. I mean, if you look at Saul's life, he was the the person that the church was afraid of. Actually, in fact, if you look at Saul, and his life was dramatically changed on the Damascus Road, right? Saul's on the Damascus Road. This bright light shines around him. He hears a voice from heaven. Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took persecution of the church so personally. He says, why are you persecuting me? Saul goes blind. And if you just read the story of Saul, guys, it's mentioned three times. His testimony is repeated three times fully in the book of Acts. It's a lot. It's a lot of scripture to talk about Saul three times because this was a big deal to them. I mean, imagine for us if like the leader of ISIS became a a follower of Jesus. I mean, like the the main guy comes out and goes, Jesus is Lord. He's fully God and fully. I mean, he died for the sins of the world. You must believe in him. Like imagine if that happened. Or like more subtly, like a Richard Dawkins comes out, like a a notorious atheist, says, I've been wrong my whole life. Jesus truly is God. There is a God, and his name is Jesus. I mean, if that were to happen, the church, you could imagine, would be like, is this a trick? Right? Like, they wouldn't believe it. Like, okay, maybe he's trying to say he's a believer so he can get in and then really kill us. Like, they're afraid of Saul, who became Paul. They're afraid of him at first. It actually took a guy named Barnabas to say, no, 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 his conversion was real he's really a follower of Jesus. Church, don't be afraid. Because you can imagine, it's like, no, no, my friend Stephen died at his hands. I, I don't know if I trust this dude. So they had to tell this story three times in the book of Acts. And at one point in time, there was Jews who were so mad at Saul for believing in Jesus, for you could say converting, but there's, there's some Jewish men who were so upset by this, they actually made a vow and said, we will not eat food until Paul is dead. We're not gonna eat food until Paul's dead. That's scary. If like 50 of you came together, I'm like, we're not going to eat until your side is dead. I'd be freaked out. I'm like, you're Americans. That's not gonna, like, you're going to be hungry. You're going to to want to make this happen today. Like, that'd be freaky. And so this is happening to him. I mean, this guy who, who wrote this book, you got to understand, he had a radical transformation in the early church. I mean, this guy planted church after church after church. I mean, he wrote 13 plus letters of, of the Bible. I mean, the, God used him radically to change this world. And so we see... Saul, or Paul, who's the author, and we're going to look at the context in a second, but it says Paul and Timothy. Now, it's possible, most people believe that Timothy, when he says Paul and Timothy, maybe he's just greeting him, yes, or greeting the church. It's most likely that Timothy is the one who's writing down what Paul's saying. That's possible, but we'll look at verse one again. Paul and Timothy, and how does he introduce himself? He says, bondservants of Jesus, bondservants of Jesus. I think most um, translators almost don't have the guts. It's if you look at this, is not the word bondservant or servant is not, it's not fair. It's doulos. It's a word that just meant slave. And I do think that most translators are like, I don't know if he should write this. You know, he's saying, I'm a slave of Jesus. Now, this was the time in the letter where he'd be like, Saul or Paul, he would say PhD, MS, like name all of his credentials, right? He doesn't start off with like, hey, look at who I am. He's like, look at who I am. I'm just a servant. I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus. Now, most of you are like, I'm tracking with you, Josiah, until you said slave. Like, that doesn't, no. How does that work? You know, it's interesting with, with Paul, he honestly views, and you can read his letters, and we'll talk about this hopefully more throughout his epistles, but Paul describes true freedom found in slavery to Jesus. And, and this is, like, very hard for maybe us as Americans. You gotta understand, even for them, this was hard. This was, like, offensive to them, not just us. You gotta understand, a third of the empire was a, in slavery at this point, a third of the empires in slavery. Now, it looked different than how we might view, like, American slavery. It's different than that. You know, slaves back then could own slaves. Slaves back then could own land. But it doesn't change it. You're still someone's property. And Paul's using this word very purposely. He goes, I want you to know I'm a slave of Jesus. That's where true freedom is. And really, let's think about this for a second. We, I think, as Americans, for the most part, view freedom as, let me do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, and that makes me free. The Bible says that makes you a slave. If you want to the power to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, you think you're free, but in reality, you're, you're a slave to yourself. And you're a bad master. And you'll make yourself miserable in the process. There, there really is something about that. You know, if, if, again, I think about this as a parent. If I look at my three-year-old son, I'm like, do whatever you want, whenever you want. And I, I believe in just giving you full freedom. Like, terrible parenting, right? There's no consequences. There's no discipline. I mean, what will he grow up to be? And, and yet, that's what we want. We think We want complete autonomy. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do or how to do it. And in reality, you, you see this in life. So often it's through sacrifice, so often it's through the giving of yourself you find true freedom. It's so often those who are musicians, those who are athletes, they discipline, 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 discipline. And then what happens? They can kind of do whatever they want. On the piano, if they, just, if they just, for hours and hours and hours on end, practice the piano, uh, at the end of the day, they're gonna be able to like, do whatever they want. Be more free on it. If I bang the piano, it's just gonna be sound awful. Like I'm free, ding ding. Like it's gonna sound terrible. But when someone who disciplines himself, someone who gives himself fully over to it, eventually you see how it leads to, leads to real freedom. And you can kind of there's so many illustrations we could give. One way I try to put this down is: world's freedom is having to do what you want to do. Having to do what you want to do. Jesus' freedom is wanting to do what you have to do. And please think about the first phrase, having to do what you want to do. It's like, it starts off like, I want to do this, and then it turns into like, I have to do, I have to fully give myself over to my desires. And you kind of become, you see that you become a slave to what you want to do. With Jesus, you go, I want to do what I have. So God's called me to love. God's called me to share the gospel. God's called me to forgive. God's called me to, and there's a side of it where when you submit yourself to Jesus, you go, I want to do what I have to do. And you see real freedom in that. And Paul starts off his epistle and says, Paul and Timothy were slaves of Jesus. And again, this would be offensive in their, in their culture, in their time. People who go, wait, you're, you're, but you're free. You're free, Paul. And he says, no, I'm a slave to Jesus. And we're going to keep walking through this. He says, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. To all the saints. Now, if you grew up with a Catholic background, you might read that and go, to all the saints. And it kind of makes you twitch, like, saint, that's not me. Like, you know, you've got to understand this. This is not just for an elite group of Christians. He's saying if if you're in Christ, you're a saint. Because sainthood is not something you ever could aspire to or get yourself. It's something God makes you. Positionally in Christ, he says you're, you're a saint. To all those who are in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Now, that phrase is used 86 times by Paul, all right, throughout all of his letters. In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. What's true of Jesus is true of you. Like that is a beautiful phrase. You're in Christ. You know, maybe you've heard people say, when God sees you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. Like, that's where we kind of get this idea. When you're in Christ, it's not that God sees Josiah, the filthy sinner that I am, he sees Jesus Christ in me, the hope of glory. He goes, You're in Christ. That's your position. You're seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2 talks about. He goes, This is who you are. You are a saint, not because of something you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you and simply your acceptance and belief in that. He goes to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. And he says, who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Now, just so we know, fun facts, you can look at this. Bishops is just the word overseers. Overseers is this word in Greek, episkopos. Maybe you've heard of that word, episkopos. That sounds familiar. Yeah, episcopalians, kind of based off that. It's also synonymous. It's interchangeable with another word for elder. We would read the word elder, and that's presbyter. You think Presbyterians, like I'm an episkopos, I'm an episcopalian, I'm a Presbyterian. It's like, it's the same thing. It's the same word, same idea of it, at least the word is, it's an overseer or leader in the church. Deacons, this word diakonos or diakonos, the idea of a deacon is just a servant. Here's something I'm why bring this up. All of us here should be, in a sense, deacons, but not all of us are positionally deacons. Jesus says, the greatest among you, let him become your diakonos, let him become your servant. There's something about just all of us being a servant, and then over time, that function many times turns into a title, like you're actually a, a leader in the church. Your deacon in the church. That means according to Act 6, it seems as if primarily you're giving yourself over to justice and justice needs. You're giving yourself over to deeds. A simple way of thinking of it is an elder might primarily focus on the ministry of the word, while a deacon focuses on the ministry of deed. Ministry of word versus the ministry of deed. They both will have some crossover, no doubt, but that might be their primary focus. And here's a letter 10 years later, and we're going to see the origin. We're going to see the origin, but this is a messed up group of people, and now there's deacons and elders. But it takes a while. <laughs> it takes some time. And a lot of times there's the, there's the functionality or there's the task before the title. And he like, I'm writing to all of you, to everyone in the body of Christ, to the leaders, I'm writing to, the, to you. And then he says what he always says in his 13 epistles, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, grace and peace. This is how Paul really begins all of his letters, grace and peace, Caris, God's grace, God's favor on you. God's, it's almost the idea of like God's face is shining upon you, like in the book of Numbers, the priestly ble- blessing. It's like God's grace is just God looking upon you with favor. You have the favor of God. It's not earned. You can never work for it. Just God gives you favor. You have the peace. You know, there's two ways people would say hi to each other. Charis in Greek, or if you're Jewish, you'd say shalom. And, and basically, paul both these words are in Greek, but you kind of see the idea, like charis and peace. Charis, grace, and shalom from God, from God that matters really quick, because I, I always skip over these. That really matters from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. So for example, um, this is not just from Paul, he's saying this is from God. So uh, Nick, who plays drums up here, if I told him, Nick, you are the greatest drummer in the world, man, he'd be like, oh wow, thank you, dude, that's cool. Now if like Chris Martin from like Coldplay was like, yo dude, I just heard you and you're the greatest drummer in the world, that would mean a lot more than me. I'd be oh, I said the same thing, like why don't you care about what I said? But that would mean a lot more, that would mean a lot more, why? Because who is it coming from? Who it's coming from, there's more weight to it. Understand this. Paul's like, grace and peace, not for me, but from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus. Church, I don't know if we believe this always. I don't know if I always believe this. Do you know that there's grace and peace from God, our Father? You know, I want to ask this question. What if greetings matter? What if greetings matter? What if we actually valued greetings? You know, we don't, we don't start off this way. I, I'm very quick. I'm very fast, I don't know, to read through this. Like, let me get to the good stuff. Like, Josiah, come on, let's get to Philippians 121 or 126. Like, let's get to the good stuff. But greetings matter. How Paul addresses them. And I wonder if we changed how we greeted each other. You know, (laughs) Paul has different ways of saying this. He's like, greet one another with a holy kiss. Some of you single guys take that like way too serious and we've alerted security, don't worry, people out there. I'm just kidding. But like there's, what if we actually greeted each other just differently? What, What if when the moment was getting intense or tight, we're like grace and peace? What if we just could almost change, what if the way we did emails, the way we met people, the way we encountered people, just the first off, the first interaction you know, it's funny, you think about this, actually, caris means good health to you. Like, this is something, like, you'd be walking, like, for us, if we were to do this, this is not normal for us as Americans. This is not something we do. But their way of saying hi was, like, hey, good health to you, good health to you. Like, oh, that's sweet, right? That was, like, their way of saying it. For us, we were uh, kind of, like, de-evolved throughout time. Like, hey, hello, how you doing? Hey. Uh, like, it turned into that, right? Like, what, was that a hi? Like, uh, like, okay. But we've kind of de-evolved when it comes to greetings. And for them, there's, like, this beautiful thing of, like, grace. And peace. Uh, Guys, greetings matter. Paul is not just throwing out meaningless pleasantries. He's really trying to say, This is from God. This is how we're going to start off this epistle. So, this is our author. This is Saul, who became Paul. A guy who hated Christians, who says, God gives you grace and God gives you peace. Now, let's talk about the audience. All right, number two is the audience. Who is he writing to? All right, he says, to Philippi. Okay, that's important. So Philippi, let's talk about Philippi because this is very important, all right? We're gonna talk about how Philippi is a Roman colony and what does that mean? So Philippi is a Roman colony. Um, That means it was Roman occupied. That means Roman law was really established there, carried out there. If you were a Roman citizen, you could actually be exempt from certain taxes. That was good news. There, there's almost like pride in being a Roman citizen. Essentially, Roman colonies were like, let's bring Rome to this area of the world let's bring Roman culture, Roman influence. You know, they'd be Latin on the walls. There'd be Greco-Roman architecture. There'd be the Pantheon. There in Philippi, there would be a temple built for Caesar to worship Caesar, to honor Caesar. So Rome Rome really meant a lot. It means you actually had Roman protection. That means you had to go to, you couldn't just be like persecuted, even though Paul was, you know, they kind of regret that. They're like, oh, he's Roman, Uh, let him go. The idea that you actually had a right to a trial That you actually had Roman, like again, the the law system set up for you in your favor in some ways. I mean, being a Roman citizen or being a Roman colony was just a big deal. It was something that Philippi could boast in. You know, actually in Philippi, most likely there's a lot of just retired veterans as well in that city. People who fought in wars. People who fought and they conquered and they won. You know, there's almost really a a big allegiance to Caesar, a thankfulness for him. Thankfulness for the fact that there is peace among the people. There is Pax Romana. There's like peace for the Romans and for Roman citizens. I mean, this was a big deal. And here's what we see. We're going to see it in verse 26, 27 later. But Paul is basically saying, you're not just a Roman citizen. You're a citizen of heaven. You're a colony of heaven. And Paul's using language to kind of like undo everything they thought about themselves. So, for example, their goal was, how can we bring Rome to Philippi? Paul's saying, make your goal. How can you bring heaven to Philippi? Not just how does Philippi become more Roman, how does Philippi become more heavenly? Do you guys get this? And, and Paul's playing off this with them. You're citizens of Rome? No, no, no. You're citizens of heaven. This is so much more important. You got to understand, way before you're a, Philippi, a Philippian, I don't know how to say it, a Philippian, way before you're a Philippian, way before you're a Roman, he's like, you're a citizen of heaven. And that goes for us. Much more before we're an American, we're a citizen of heaven. He's saying, this is who you are. This is, this is your real home. Don't just seek to bring Rome here. Don't just seek to bring the American dream here. Seek to bring heaven here. And, and this was something that would just, you know, it almost do something to their heart too. We're like, this is dangerous. Do we really know what Paul's saying? And we'll talk more about that. But it's dangerous what Paul was writing. It was dangerous what he was saying here. He was more importantly, you're a citizen of heaven. Now, Philippi is in a really strategic part of the globe. I do believe Paul and just God's spirit, how he led Paul, had him plant in big cities or highly populated areas, and the gospel just kind of spread from these areas. But we're going to read the origin story in just a second, but we're going to throw a map up here for you just so you can kind of see it. But Philippi, here's why it's so important. Philippi was the first church planted technically on the European continent. So if we have that map. So Paul... Is wanting to go into, and we're going to read this, just into in a sense called it's called Asia or Asia Minor, it's nowadays Turkey, but Paul wanted to go to have go east essentially. He wanted the gospel, and, and the gospel did go east, but he wanted to purposely go there himself. And we're going to read how God's like, no, you're going to go west. You're going to go to Philippi. It's in Macedonia or modern day Greece. This is the first church plant in not just Greece but in Europe. Why does that matter? Um, that changes the West. That changes Western culture. That changes really like the known world today. The fact that the gospel went west, went to the European continent, and then more churches from there were planted in the west. I mean, this changes history as we know it, the book of Philippians. How the gospel finally started going west, and how it's so intentional, and how it's so from the Lord. So let's read the origin, all right? Let's go back to Acts 16. Acts 16. If you would turn there, Acts chapter 16. I actually have to use a different Bible because my son took a bite of that out of that page um, like a year or two ago. So I was going like, oh, let me read Acts 16. And like, there's a big bite mark out of it. So I have my other Bible. All right, Acts 16. So Paul's going to Philippi. He's church planting in that area. And let's read what happens. Acts chapter 16, verse six. Let's see the origin, the audience, Philippi, who he's writing to. Verse six, Acts 16, verse six. It says, now when they had gone through, I'm gonna say it how I wanna say it, all right? Don't you judge me. Uh, Phrygia. In the region of Galatia, they were forbidden, listen, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. I'd fully, I, I don't fully get this. I, I don't understand, guys, let's be honest, we don't understand fully the ways of God. This is not a bad intention, it's not a bad desire. Hey, let's bring the gospel to Mysia and Phrygia and Galatia. Let's, and we know that the gospel did go into those areas, we know that. But at this point, at this time with Paul specifically, God's like, no, I have something else in mind. I, I don't always understand the ways of the Lord. I don't think anyone here does. <laughs> but there's something about going, okay, God, even though I want to do something, even though I want to do something good, is this from you, though? In the Holy Spirit, however, and again, this is very unclear. Did the Holy Spirit speak to them audibly? Did he speak to the elders? Did he speak to Paul? Or h- h- We don't know exactly how this worked, but it, it was clear the Holy Spirit's like, you're not to go there. And again, why are we so thankful for this? Because the gospel went west, because of this, eventually the church in Philippi is planted. The Holy Spirit obviously had something in mind. Our desire as a church is to hear the voice of God and to follow the voice of God. Our desire is to say, God, where do you want us to go? How do you want us to send people or spend our resources? God, where are you going? How can we go and follow you? So the, the Holy Spirit made it clear. Now, this is really interesting. This is why I think this is so interesting. I never noticed this. You might not either. Uh, you'll see in verse 8 that they end up in Troas, and from Troas they go into Philippi. Now, here's what's interesting. Luke wrote Acts. All right, and in verse 6 and 7, you, you see him saying, and you can reread it, they, them. All Bible scholars believe that Luke met Paul in Troas because the language changes from they and them to us and we. So God's like, you're not going to go east, you're going to go west, and you're going to meet in Troas with Luke. And Luke's going to be the historian of this. Luke's going to be the writer of this. So again, I'm so thankful that God sent him to Troas because he met Luke there, and Luke was able to write this down for us. So, isn't God good how he does that, right? Um, let's keep reading. Verse 8, or verse 9. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia, that's Philippi, and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's a pretty good conclusion. Uh, you have a vision that God's like, come to Macedonia. He's like, I think we should go to Macedonia. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, but I love that this, he has, sees this vision of a man. Now, let me just say this. He had a vision, and his vision is not how, it, it's not how he necessarily had it. I don't know who this man is. There's, like, a lot of speculation. Who is this man saying, come to Macedonia? We're going to read about a jailer in a second and how he ended up believing in Jesus. Some say it's the jailer before, like, he got saved. Like, God's like, come to Macedonia. I have no idea. But the vision wasn't how he thought it would go down. He doesn't, he doesn't go and meet a man. He, he goes and meets a woman. And I think God gives us visions, and sometimes they might look a little differently. We've got to be flexible in the process. That it might not always be how we think it is. Let me say this. God gave him a vision, you guys, and it was harder and longer, more difficult than he imagined. He ends up in chains. He ends up being beaten. A lot of times, like, God, give us a vision, and we might get a vision of something beautiful like this, and we're going to see it might not always end how we think, but it's still a vision from God. And it still might be more difficult and harder than we thought. So let's keep reading verse 11. It says, "Therefore, Verse 11, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran straight course to Samortheus, <laughs> and the day came to and, and the day came to Neo- Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is in the foremost city of the part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have heard, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. All right. He has this vision come to Macedonia. He goes into the area of Philippi. Here's why he goes to the river. are like, what is this about? The, the idea was if there was Paul's habits, by the way, if you ever study Acts, he goes into a new city and what's the first thing he does? So he goes, where's the synagogue? Where are Jewish believers? Let me tell them how the Messiah has come. He usually goes to the synagogue. And a lot of times, Gentiles got saved <laughs> at the synagogue because they would be at the temple as well. But he would share how Jesus was the Messiah at the synagogue. It seems that there's no Jewish synagogue. That's why he goes to the river. Custom was that men and women, if there's not 10 Jewish men, if there's not 10 Jewish men, there could be no synagogue. So maybe a couple of the men and the women, the Jewish women, would come to the river and they would pray. And that's basically their place until they had a synagogue of their own. So Paul goes to the river and there's women praying there. And I want you to see this. The church essentially starts from women gathered praying. <laughs> and there's something about just the church being birthed from prayer. Let's just talk about that. There's something about the church being birthed from people coming together faithfully when you're alone, when you're tired, when there's not a lot of people, and just pray. One of my favorite things is that we have a few people who meet in the hallway here around 9 a.m. and just pray. If you'd like to come to that, come to that. I just think anything good happens, it starts with prayer. And so he meets this woman named Lydia. Now, who is Lydia? Lydia was a seller of purple, and that's a way of saying she's very wealthy, all right? It, it was almost like she was in the fashion industry. Purple was expensive. Uh, Lydia was, in a, in a sense, the CEO of her own company, Here's a very wealthy woman. She's most likely Middle Eastern, maybe Indian. But you see Lydia, who's extremely wealthy, and she sought the Lord God. And that's really interesting how it says that. That means she's actually a believer in the Jewish God. So she worships, she wants to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul's there, he goes, let me tell you about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says the Lord opened her heart to hear the word. And I don't know if you've caught that when you read that, but that is our prayer. You guys, anytime the Bible's open and being read, Honestly, if the Holy Spirit isn't opening hearts, it's just like pouring water on a hard rock. The idea is like God must open the hearts. As the wor- word is poured out, that just God would just open the hearts and it'd be poured in and produce life and fruits. And so if the Lord opened her heart. Guys, that is our prayer, by the way. Can we just pray, like seriously, think through an individual today that you'd be praying for God to open their hearts. There are people who come to me and say, just hey, can you talk to this person? They're not saved. And I'm like, I'll talk to them. But Lord, please open their heart because it'll just be my words fall on deaf ears unless, God, you open their heart. God, open their heart. Make them open to you. I think we should be praying that more. The Lord opened her heart to take heed to what Paul said. And so she gets saved. Her whole household gets saved. They get baptized. So here's this wealthy CEO woman. She, in a sense, probably had a house on the intercoastal, big house. Come over, right? Like, wealthy woman. Next, we're gonna be the exact opposite. Not a wealthy woman, but a poor slave girl. Keep reading, verse 16. Now, it happened as, as we went to prayer That a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. That's what the demon-possessed girl is saying. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed—I love that. Can you just, like, circle that if you guys get annoyed a lot? That's a good verse. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which were not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received a, such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and, fa- and fastened their feet in the stocks. I want you to think through just what's happened in this moment. Paul casts out a demon. This girl's in her right mind. They go, oh my goodness, we're going to lose our prophets. They bring Saul to the magistrates, the leaders of Rome in that area. And they say, they're Jews. Look what they're doing. Paul's a Roman, he gets beaten without a trial. That's why we'll see them later at the end of the chapter, they end up just releasing him because they go, Oh, we beat him without a trial. That's not good. He's a Roman. That's really not good. And Paul actually says, Hey, you beat me and I'm a Roman. I actually want to talk to your bosses. And the whole story kind of continues. But you see this this little slave girl, and you see Lydia, this wealthy CEO woman. A- and you see kind of how the church is being formed early on. And they couldn't be more different. One who has freedom, one who's religious, Lydia's religious seeking God. One who's in a sense pagan, not religious. She's spiritual, you could say, but not religious. You see her be poor, oppressed, abused. And now we're gonna meet a third person in the story. And the third person, he's not necessarily religious or like spiritual, he's like a blue-collar worker. He's a Roman jailer. Let's read about him. All right, verse 25. But at midnight, so they're in jail. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They're in prison singing hymns and praising God. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. All of us are here. Then he called for light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into the house, he had set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Amazing. All right, so they're in prison. It's midnight. They're singing psalms and hymns. They're singing these psalms to God. I just picture this guy's like, what are they doing? They're in prison, it's midnight. They're singing, they're rejoicing. Earthquake happens, their chains fall off. Even the us other prisoners, the doors open, their chains are off. For some reason, no one leaves. I wonder if the other prisoners are like, what are the guys singing going to do? Just looking over, he see the, the jailer wakes up, he sees the doors open. He goes, oh my gosh, they're all gone. He's about to kill himself. Why? Either I kill myself or I die a painful death, probably a painful and slow death. Might as well end my life. And Paul's like, don't do yourself harm. And don't you love the question he has? He goes, what must I do to be saved? Wouldn't it be great if everyone just came up to us and hey, what must I do to be saved? Like, oh my gosh, thank you. But it's funny, that doesn't happen. It really does not happen, I think, unless we're in the will of God and we're probably in prison and we're probably going through some things. Like, Paul had to go through all of that just to hear that awesome question. Just to get this incredible question. Paul had to go through everything he went through. What must I do to be saved? He goes, just, and I love how simple it is. Do we get that? Believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. Just believe on Jesus, you'll be saved. It's like wait, anything else? It's so simple. All those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And just, he makes it so simple. And he does. And he gets baptized that night. And his family gets baptized. So they, they get saved. They share the God. And so you see God doing this incredible work in his family. And you see three completely different groups of people. A wealthy CEO woman, a poor slave girl, a blue-collar soldier, Roman, Roman soldier, most likely retired guy in that area, in that community. Three completely different stories. And this is the start of Philippi. This is the start of the Philippian church. Actually, verse 40, last verse we'll read in this chapter. Verse 40, it says, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. The church's birth, the church's forms, a random group of people. And let me just say this. here's, Here's what that teaches us. Let me say, first and foremost, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel's for everyone. You might think, I'm too smart for this. You might think, no, no, I'm not religious. You might think it's for that person who's oppressed but not me. I have things going on in my life, but the gospel's for everyone. The wealthy, the poor, the normal blue-collar, it's for everyone. doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter your social status. doesn't matter what kind of family you grew up in. The gospel's for everyone. Can I say the one thing I love about Christianity, if you study, like, world religions, is you can't really say Christianity is only in this part of the globe. Like, mo- mostly, mainly, main world religions are kind of located in one part of the globe. Whether it's Hinduism and Buddhism, it's primarily in the East. I'm not saying there can't be in the West, but it's primarily in the East whether you look at Islam being in the Middle East as well, primarily, and going a little bit into the West. but With Christianity, you guys, and you study church history, you go, man, it, you say it started in Jerusalem, goes into Europe and Asia Minor, it goes West, it goes to South America, it goes into Africa, it goes in, right, right now it's exploding in China and Korea. I mean, you, the gospel's not like, it's only for this people group. It's only for this culture, it's only for the people who have these customs, it's for everyone. There's something really unique about the gospel. Because it's not saying take on our cultures, take on these certain methods we have, it's take on Jesus. You know, you can follow Jesus in your culture. You can follow Jesus in your home. But take on, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. It's, it's available for everyone. And here's what we see, why I love the Philippian church, is understand Paul was Saul. It, it is interesting, if you look at just Jew, Jews, Jewish men, Jewish leaders Jewish leaders in this day, maybe you've heard of this, they would pray many prayers. They would pray a specific prayer, specific prayers throughout the day. One of the Jewish leaders' prayers that they would pray three times a day, and it, we'll put it up here, it was this. It was, O oh Lord God, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That was a prayer Jewish men prayed. God, thank him I'm a Jew. Thank him I'm a Jewish man. And we're not even going to deconstruct that because it's pretty messed up for a lot of reasons, right? But understand, this is something Paul would pray. And do you want to know what happens? You have a Gentile, you have a woman, and you have a slave get saved. And you have this this to early church. You have this woman, you have a slave girl, and this Gentile Roman all get saved. Something he used to praise God for, for not being, God is saying this is the church. God is saying this is what's coming together. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Paul would later write, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you all one in Christ. There's something unique about the gospel. The gospel was way ahead of its time. He's saying that you're just, you're just in Christ. You're just a new creation. You're just a part of the family of God. There's something beautiful about the gospel. saying it doesn't matter your race, your gender, your background. We have Jesus. That's the most important thing. The most precious thing. Paul, who would boast boasted not being these things, is now eating dinner with them and saying this is the start of the church. This is an unlikely group of people coming together to form this church family, and it's good, and it's beautiful. You know, you read Revelation chapter 5, and I, I love how it describes heaven in the heaven's throne room. It says all tribes and all tongues and all nations and all people groups crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And this doesn't matter. It's everyone, everyone coming together. Praising Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Only God can bring an unlikely crew like this together. Back then and still today. Amen? Only God can say, it doesn't matter your race or gender or social status. We have Christ in common. and That's the most important thing. Come to my house. Let's eat. Let's ha- hang out. Let's be a part of this community together. And it is beautiful to see what Jesus does in that way. So we have the author. We have the audience who he's writing to. And now we have his agenda. What's the point? All right. What's the point of Philippians? All right. His agenda. So let's kind of go back to this. Um, There's a lot of reasons Paul wrote epistles. Primarily, one was to correct doctrinal issues or call people out for their sin. It's really interesting how most epistles are like, I'm writing this to address these issues, and a lot of them are either doctrinal or personal sins happening in the church. They're correctional epistles. Uh, This epistle has some correction between a couple women who are fighting in the church. We'll read about that in chapter 4. But... It's primarily an epistle to say, you guys are awesome, thank you. When I was in prison, you sent Epaphroditus and he brought all this stuff to me, thank you. Prisons back then didn't have, you know, game rooms and weight rooms and like books you could read. They didn't even have food provided for the prisoners. All of that had to be provided from the outside. And he goes, thank you, thank you. When I was in need, you sent someone to help me. Thank you. You guys are awesome. So in, in many ways, it's to like just thank them and praise them and keep them focused on Jesus. Here's why. Over 50 times in Philippians, you could say the theme of Philippians is Jesus. 50 times Jesus is mentioned in his four chapter book. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he's calling him Christ, Lord. He's talking about Jesus. Now here's why that's so important. We are very used to the idea of Jesus being called Christ, Lord, Savior, King. That's not, that not normal for them that Paul, I want you to make this clear, was taking Roman language and using it for the gospel, using it for Jesus. So for example, um, we're going to actually give you three words. I want you to like write these three words down, just to give you context. All right, here's three words to like understand the context. It was the empire, Caesar, and the gospel. Three ideas. I want you guys to first hear this. So the empire. Um, the Roman empire, it's important to understand the context. This really was the, the, the ruling empire from England to India, where there was something called Pax Romana, Roman peace. It was, it was safe to travel this time. It was, it was actually, you know, the idea of Rome ruling put an end to a lot of other wars out there. And for many people, it was good that they ruled and reigned. So you have this empire that had a lot of power. It kind of emphasized peace within their kingdom. You know, it was not perfect by any means, but a lot of people did love the Roman Empire. Next, you have Caesar. Now, we know the first Caesar was Julius Caesar, and then the second Caesar was Octavian, his nephew. Octavian was the one who, I guess, at his like, uncle's death and his funeral, there was like a shooting star, and he goes, oh my gosh, that is Julius Caesar. He's divine, and if he's divine, I'm divine. Worship me. And Octavian wanted to be first called the son of God. Call me the son of God. And so there's these terms that the Caesars wanted to use and have. When Paul wrote this, the Caesar in power, we believe, was Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero's favorite title to be addressed was call me Lord and call me Savior. He loved being called Lord and Savior. He was, you know, Caesar is curious. is, is the Lord. They, they wanted to be, him to be called Lord. He wanted to be called Lord. So here's Paul writing this letter. And I want you to hear how subversive the, the language is. He's like, Jesus Christ, our King, the Son of God, Savior, Lord. Do you understand if you're a Philippian, being in a Roman colony, having this letter, you're going, uh, this is dangerous. And you're thinking, not only can I just be in prison, but I could be put to death for having this letter. He's literally writing Philippians 2, Verse like seven through 10. He's like, At the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, not Caesar, basically, is what he's saying. And you're on this going, We could die for this, for just even having this. You see, Paul was just known for taking like pagan thought and redeeming them for the gospel. Again, for example, gospel, is, this is not a Christian word. Eongelion, however they said it in Greek, the idea was the gospel was if a Caesar came to power, they would send out these messengers to preach the Eongelion. They'd say, go out and tell people the good news that Caesar is on the throne and he is Lord. And so they'd actually send out messengers to preach the gospel, to preach this message. Understand that, here's why I'm saying this. At the church today, 2019, when I say Jesus is Lord, Savior, King, Son of God, for us it's very churchy. We're like, oh, that's church words. This was not originally church words. This is Roman words. This is Roman Empire words. Paul's taking this and it's being very subversive and it's very dangerous what he's doing. And he's saying, No, no, Jesus is the kurios. he's the savior, he's the son of God. Every knee will bow to him and confess that he is Lord. I mean, this was an incredibly dangerous book to have. And he goes, "Now tell the gospel. Now tell the message that Jesus is on the throne, and like he, everything, Roman Paul is saying. Now do this for the kingdom of God." And it, it is weird if you try to apply it to us today. I, I don't I know how we could try to be like, "Oh, Jesus is the commander in chief who has all authority." I'm not sure how we would do that. But this is what he was—he was saying, "Like, let's use this language of Rome and show how it ultimately reflects Christ." And so here's the the point of why I say this: He's trying to bring an emphasis on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. He's where your true salvation is. He's where your true hope is found. And not even just that. The second main theme, obviously, maybe you've heard of this before with Philippians, is joy. Joy that is centered on Jesus. A joy that can only come from Jesus. You know, he used the word joy, rejoice, gladness 19 times in this epistle. It's just a book filled with joy. Where's Paul writing this book from? From prison, chained to a soldier. And he's writing joy, rejoice, gladness. Jesus is Lord, I have joy. Jesus is the king of kings. He's writing this book and saying, you can have joy despite your circumstances. We see see the point of the gospel here. Listen, here's one of the main points uh, of Philippians. What happens to you does not have to control you. Paul, who's in prison, is saying, what happens to me does not control me. I've learned to be content. I'm so thankful for this book because we're gonna talk through anxiety and depression and contentment. Paul's saying in this book, listen, have a joy centered in Christ. I have something that, despite my circumstances, it's not going to control me. Whatever might happen to me, it's not going to control me. What happens to you does not have to control you. This is Paul's heart. This is what he's right about. When I think of the idea of, of, of joy, I'm going to try to define it for you in just a second, but there's a verse that comes to mind that is just so profound, and I feel like fits so well with Philippians. And just write this verse down. It's Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to this. Habakkuk writes, Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, and there are no grapes in the vines... Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. This is joy. Even though everything's fallen apart, we have no food, we have nothing to drink or eat, and no cattle, nothing, no wealth, nothing to sell, buy, trade with, even though we have none of that, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Joy is found in something so much deeper than circumstances. In church, this is important. If we could get something through our head, my heart today, is even though, dot, 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 I will. Think through that for yourself. Even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though finances seem to be falling apart. Even though my marriage is on eggshells. Even though, fill in the blank, I will rejoice. This is so key. Joy is not based off what's happening, so now I'm happy. Let me celebrate that. It's something richer and deeper. And I think that there's something I, I wish our church could like hear this morning is simply this phrase, even though I will. Even though I will. Okay, really quick. Even though. Say, even though. I will. Even though I will rejoice. In what? In the Lord. In the God of my salvation. Because this is what I'm taking joy in. I think the best definition I've ever heard of joy is simply this. Joy is a supernatural delight in the person, purposes, and people of God. Let's just, really quick, joy is supernatural. It's supernatural. Not like, hey, have joy right now. Have joy. You're like, eh, Like, I can't force it on you. Right? Can't, like, pry open a smile. But there's something about it that's supernatural that is found in the person of God. The person of God just enjoying him, bringing the presence of God into your life. And the purposes of God. Saying, God, I know that you're bigger than this moment. I know that your purposes for me are good. And I I get excited when I think about, yes, God 2019, I'm excited. Your purposes are good. And it might be prison, but it's good. (laughs) And he says, and for the people of God. i am taking joy in God. You surround me with great community, with great people who love you. Joy is a supernatural delight in the person, purposes, and people of God. Even though I will rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation. See, let me ask you just one question. Where do you get your source of joy? What brings you the most sense of meaning and value and just this hope that does not fail? Again, guys, we are so quick to make our our source of joy for for families. If you have kids, it's your kids. It could be your job, your money, your retirement, your whatever. Our source of joy is maybe some future hope that might fail us. And he's saying, you know, make your source of joy Jesus. The theme of Philippians, 50 times Jesus, 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 Jesus. Lord, he's Lord, he's Lord, he's Lord. He's just trying to make it really clear. That, hey, we can have joy because Jesus is Lord. He's on the throne. He's reigning and reigning, even though I will. Even though things fall apart, I will rejoice. Amen? That is our hope as we approach this book. As we approach this book, that we'd find our joy in Jesus. That we'd be citizens of heaven. We're going to pray. We're just going to end with one song of worship and a couple quick thoughts before our giant picnic. Can we do that? Let's just pray really quick father we're just um we're humbled by the fact that jesus truly is lord that jesus you are ruling and reigning on the throne that at at your name every knee will bow We're, we're here to honor you to enjoy you to sing to you to grow in the grace and knowledge of you jesus god i just pray for everyone in this everyone in this room those who are just sitting down, they're overwhelmed, they're tired, they're anxious, they're frustrated. God, I ask as we read your word that it would become a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that God, we'd find true joy in you, Jesus, myself included. God, not saying that there won't be moments of pain or difficulty or for times to weep, but Jesus, we thank you that we can delight in the person of you, God. God, we just thank you We ask as we just continue even um, through this book as a church family, the hope and focus would be on you. So Jesus, we're here to praise you now, sing to you now in your wonderful name. Amen. Hey, guys, let's just stand and close our time in song.